Hi again, everyone. Please turn back to uh, the first reading from the book of Romans. That's where we're looking at today, but I'll pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, help me now to teach your word faithfully and clearly, uh, but more than that, help every one of us to have ears ready to listen, hearts that are ready to respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today uh, we are starting a new sermon series and it's in what I think is the greatest book ever written, which is the book of Romans. Uh, When I'm asked to give advice to uh, ministers starting out in their churches, uh, like Mike, as he starts at Leppington this morning, uh, one of the things I always say is, make sure you try to teach Romans every five years. So some books of the Bible you might, you know, deal with only once, you know, the book of Haggai or whatever, but teach Romans every five years. It is that important for every Christian's diet that you have to come back to it time and time and time and time again. So it was funny, when we met to plan the uh, teaching program for this year, I think it was Troy uh, said to me in his quiet sort of way, he said, hey Phil, how long has it been since we looked at Romans? Because he just overheard me saying that to Mike about as he started at Leppington. And it was his gentle way of pointing out my failure to keep my own rules and my hypocrisy. Because uh, it's actually been nearly 10 years since we looked at the Book of Romans at St George North. So here we are, back in the Book of Romans. Now to help us understand how important Romans is, I want to start with a bit of a history lesson. Uh, sadly, throughout history, there have been many, many times where the church has lost the gospel has wandered away from the good news. Uh, and in fact, sadly, the, if you like, the parent church of the Anglican church is doing that at the moment. So in England, the Church of England has uh, recently decided to walk away from the Scriptures on some really important areas. And so you might have heard of a conference that's just been happening, the GAFCON conference in Rwanda. I was not able to go this time. I thought a holiday was more important this time than going to that. But uh, uh, it was a conference to say, no, we want to stick with the Bible. But that is nothing new. The church throughout history, sadly, has wandered away from the gospel many, many times. But nearly every time that has happened, it has been someone reading the book of Romans that has brought people back to the gospel. That's how important this book of Romans is. So one of my favourite people from church history is Augustine of Hippo. Uh, I just like saying his name. Uh, But in AD 386, he was sitting in a garden in Milan crying. He lived a horrible life, uh, but he'd come to this point of trying to work out, what do I do? What do I do with my life? Uh, And as he was sitting there, there were some kids playing a game uh, on the other side of a wall in the next garden over, and he heard one of them singing a song as part of the game where the words were, pick up and read, pick up and read. And so he picked up and read the scroll that his friend had left sitting next to him that he'd been reading, Uh, And he picked it up, and as he read it, he decided to repent of his sin and become a Christian. Uh, And of course, you know that scroll was the book of Romans. Uh, And this is what he said. I'll read it out. It's up on the screen. He said, No further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly a clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. That is what reading Romans did for him. And even though you mightn't have heard of him, some of you might have, but many of you probably haven't heard of Augustine, he probably became probably the greatest church leader and thinker other than the Apostle Paul in history. And it was the book of Romans that brought him to faith and started it all. Another person, a little more famous, 1513, Martin Luther. I hope you have heard of him. A German monk at the time. Now, even though he was incredibly religious, 
Martin Luther was incredibly unhappy uh, because he could not see how it was possible for the righteous God to ever forgive a sinner like him. So he was very aware of his own sin, but he knew it didn't matter how many masses he, he went to, it didn't matter how many prayers he said, he was not righteous and he could not see how God could forgive him. Because uh, he knew God is totally holy, God is totally righteous, and yet he was a sinner. And so the only outcome he could see was judgment for him and for all of humanity. Then he started to study the book of Romans. And Luther rediscovered the truth that sadly the church at that time had lost sight of. Uh, and what he discovered was he was actually right. He could never be good enough for God in his own strength. Going to Mass and saying prayers didn't deal with his sin. But the thing he discovered was that he was made right with God, not by works, but by grace. That it was a free gift of God. And he received that gift by faith alone, in Christ alone. And Martin Luther then went on to become probably the most important Christian thinker other than Paul and Augustine since then uh, in history. And again, it was understanding this book of Romans that changed him. And I tell you these stories because I want to say there is no telling what happens when people start grappling with the book of Romans. It's that important. It's that wonderful. When Augustine and when Luther read it, it changed history. But on a smaller scale, the book of Romans has done that work in millions of people. On a smaller scale, I don't think you can really say, say it's an exaggeration to say this is the most influential book ever written. Certainly the most important book ever written. Now, Romans is sometimes not an easy book to understand. Uh, and so you have to put hard work into grappling with it. Uh, it but if you do, it's life-changing. Because what Romans is, is the Apostle Paul driving to the heart of the gospel. It's the Apostle Paul setting out the heart of the Christian message, saying, here it is. Do you want to know God? Do you want to find forgiveness in him? Do you want to be made right with God? Then the answers are in here. This is what Martin Luther said. It'll come up on the screen. He said, the book of Romans is our soul's daily bread, and it can never be read too often or studied too much. See, that's a pretty big rap, isn't it? Now, that's how important this part of the Bible is. So hopefully that inspires you to come along for a ride. So let's get into it. Come with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news. Now, we're often tempted to just jump over uh, the start of the letter. Uh, it's just Paul introducing himself. But what he, what he says here is really, really important because what he's doing is he's setting out his credentials. He had never been to Rome. Someone else had founded this church in Rome. So his introduction here is sort of telling them, this is why you should listen to what I have to say. And he says three things about himself. Firstly, he is a slave of Christ Jesus. It's really important, he says he's a slave. Some translations translate it servant because I don't like using that word slave. But he is a slave, not an employee. Uh, he's saying, I'm, I'm not someone who checks in and, and, and clocks off. A slave is their master's property. And so he says, I am a slave. Jesus is my master. All I have, I have surrendered to the service of Jesus. And straight away, that, that's actually our first challenge from the book of Romans. Do we count ourselves as slaves of Christ Jesus? Am I a slave of Christ? Is my life given in his service? It's worth asking because if we know Christ like Paul, then we should count ourselves as slaves of Jesus with all that entails. 
Secondly, though, I'm not just a slave. He says, I'm also called to be an apostle. Uh, An apostle is like an ambassador. It's someone who's sent out to speak the words of their master, if you like. And again, this is really important to understand this. What Paul is saying here is, I speak for Jesus. When the Australian ambassador goes into the White House and speaks to the President of the United States, he represents our country. If he says something, it's binding on us. Well, the Apostle Paul writes this letter as Jesus' ambassador. He is speaking on behalf of the King. His words have the full authority of Jesus. It's important to think about what that means. It means this is no casual letter. This is the same as all the Word of God. Uh, This isn't just a wise man's thoughts. This comes with all the authority of God. Sometimes, unhelpfully and wrongly, people try and justify sin by saying, oh, Jesus didn't say anything about that. It was only Paul that said that. You don't have that right. What Paul says is the words of God. It is Jesus' words just as much as the things sometimes unhelpfully put in red in your Bible translations in the Gospels. Paul speaks the word of God. And I wonder if sometimes we don't appreciate that when we read the Bible. I think we can take it for granted, or worse still, we decide which bits we'll listen to. When we read the Bible, or when it is read here at church, God is speaking to us. God is declaring his truth. When we remember that, I think it changes our attitude a little bit. So Paul is a slave of Jesus, but he's also an apostle of Jesus. And then having set out his credentials, if you like, his third point is about the message he brings on behalf of Jesus. So he says, I have been singled out or set aside for God's good news, or as we often say it, for the gospel. And so what is the gospel? What is that good news? Well, this whole letter spells that out, especially the first four or five chapters. But here in these first few verses... He summarises the message for us. So come with me. I want us to go through it really carefully because this really is solid gold. He says four things. Firstly, it was a message promised long ago. Look at verse 2. It says this good news, which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God's message of salvation in Jesus is the culmination of all of God's plans for all of humanity from the beginning of time. Jesus wasn't some afterthought for God. He wasn't like the things have gone wrong, I better send Jesus now. No, everything God did before then led to Christ. All those prophets in the Old Testament, like Isaiah we read before, they spoke over more than a thousand year period and every word they said was pointing us forward to this good news. And secondly, it's the news, look at verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's good news for the world totally centres in on his son. And that son is Jesus, our Lord. You cannot know God. You cannot experience God's goodness, God's blessing, God's grace apart from through his son who if we keep going thirdly it says was a descendant of David according to the flesh Jesus was a real human being flesh and blood but not just any human being he was descended from the great king David now for us we don't see why you would include that in your gospel summary sadly because we don't know our old testaments well enough but when you know your old testament you know that the greatest promise God had made was that it would be a son of David, a descendant of David, who he would send to be the saviour, the Christ, 
the anointed king. So what he's saying here is Jesus is the Christ. He is the one God had promised and he would come and establish God's kingdom forever. But more than that, look at verse 4. And who has been declared to be the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus was not just a king when he rose from the dead or more correctly when God by his Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. God was making a declaration to the world. God was saying, this is my son. This is the one I have declared to be the Lord of all. Death cannot hold him down. He is the powerful Lord of the universe. And so Paul is saying, this is the good news we have. This is our gospel. It's about this man, Jesus, who is God's promised king. But more than that, he is God's son with God's seal of approval, if you like. And I declare him to be the Lord of all. That is the facts about Jesus. That is the truth of the gospel. But Paul doesn't just want us to know that information in our heads. He doesn't see it as his job to just share the good news with people. He wants a response. And so my next heading, the response, the message demands. Come with me to verses 5 to 7. See, what does it mean for you that Jesus is the Christ? What does it mean for you that Jesus is the King descended from David? What does it mean for you that Jesus is God's Son, the Lord of all? What response does that require from us? Look at verse 5. <clears throat> says, we have received grace and apostleship through him to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name. So you see what he wants there? He wants all the nations, that is not just God's Old Testament people, not just the Jews, all people, Romans and Greeks, Australians and Paraguayans and Chinese, all people, all the nations to come to know and obey King Jesus. If you think about it, what other response could there be? Kings are there to be followed. We don't get this anymore. We're looking at this coronation over in England in a week's time, and whether you're a Republican or a monarchist, you know he doesn't have any power. But that's not the way the kings of the Bible were, were to be. They were to be obeyed. And if Jesus is the Lord of the universe, every person from every nation owes him their obedience. But if you look there, the obedience... Jesus' demands is different to what we might think. Because if you look there, what's the key phrase there in verse 5? It's the obedience of faith. What does that mean? What is the obedience of faith? Well, there's a few things it could mean. It could mean the one act of obedience that Jesus calls for is faith. The one thing he demands is that we believe in his name. Uh, that's like what Jesus says in John chapter 6. People ask Jesus, you know, who, what are the works of God we have to do? What are the things we're meant to do to please God? And what did Jesus say with John 6, 29? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe, that you believe in the one he sent. Sadly, you meet people who want to claim they're obedient to God because they live good lives because they do acts of charity, because they do religious things. But the one act of obedience God actually demands, they won't do. They will not turn and believe in Jesus as the Lord of the universe who died for their sins and rose again. It's so sad, isn't it? People who want to present their obedience to God as if somehow that will earn something from God when they won't actually do the one thing God demands, which is believe in his son. 
Another option for what Paul means there when he talks about the obedience of faith is that he wants to see an obedience that flows out of our faith. So other translations translate this as the obedience that comes from faith. And that would certainly fit with what Paul says later in Romans. Uh, That's a true and living faith will always lead to a changed life. That's what the book of James talks about. Don't tell me you've got faith if you just go on sinning and don't care. Uh, A faith without works is dead. Uh, That sort of idea. So both of those understandings are true to the rest of Scripture. That the obedience of faith is that faith is the act of obedience or that faith will always lead to obedience. I think the point it's making though is more subtle. And what it's saying is you cannot separate these two things, faith and obedience. They go together like a horse and a carriage. To believe that Jesus is the king is to live a life that now obeys him as your king. See, later in the letter, Paul's going to explain how it is faith alone, by faith alone, that we are made right with God. It's faith, that response of believing, trusting in Jesus and his message and trusting in him for salvation and eternal life. And we're going to see that that is the big message of this book. No one can save themselves by their obedience. It's only faith in Jesus that saves us. But the one you put your faith in is the Lord of the universe. The one you put your faith in is the king. So to trust him, to follow him, is to bend the knee to him. It's to say, you are the Lord. You see, you cannot separate faith in Jesus and obedience to Jesus. You can't claim to have one and not the other. Christopher Ashe, in his little commentary, he puts it like this. It'll come up on the screen. It says, the obedience of faith means bowing the knee in trusting submission to Jesus the Lord. The obedience of faith means bowing the knee in trusting submission to Jesus the Lord. And I think that captures it. Trusting Jesus the Lord. That's what Paul wants to see in every person in the world. And that is what the gospel is meant to produce in us. That's the response the gospel demands from us if you understand it. Bowing our knee in trusting submission to the king of the universe. Well, if we go on in the passage, come with me. Remember the apostle had never actually been to Rome. He didn't know any of these people, but he'd heard about them. This is actually a really great theme in the Bible. When people become Christians, other people notice it. People talk about it because when people are gripped by the gospel, they change. And people notice you've got different priorities now. You've got a different way of living now. And so once Paul heard about these Christians in Rome... And he heard about the change the gospel had made in them. He started to pray for them. And in particular, he prayed he might have the chance to get to Rome to encourage them. Come with me to verse 8. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, is my witness that I constantly mention you always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now, I would love to go to Rome one day. I've never been to Rome. I'd love to go there. I notice our our slide shows the Colosseum. I would love to go to the Colosseum. I'd love to have a trip to Rome. If anyone wants to pay for one for their pastor, I'd accept it. But if when Paul went to Rome, it was not going to be as a tourist. When Paul would get to Rome, he would not go and look around the Colosseum. He'd get put in the Colosseum and have a lion 
running after him. Understand this, it wasn't a good idea for Paul to go to Rome. He doesn't want to go to see the sights. Look at why he wants to go. Look at verse 11. I think this is so wonderful. He says, for I very much, I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. See, Paul didn't want to travel to broaden his mind. Paul didn't want to go as a way of experiencing God's creation. Those are frankly modern middle-class justifications for travel. Paul's motivation was purely the gospel and people. Sadly, lots of people skip over these verses because it's just sort of Paul's personal thought. They, they want to get to the good stuff of Romans, the doctrine that we're going to start with next week. Uh, they want to jump onto the great doctrines. But I think these verses give us a wonderful insight into the godly example of the Apostle Paul. See, I love the way, look at the verses again. I love the way that what gave him joy was hearing about people's faith in Jesus. That's what made him joyful. I love the way he prayed for people constantly, even these people he had never met. Uh, I love the way he wanted to build them up. I want, love the way he wanted to encourage them in their faith. But I also love his humility. Do you see how he knew you will encourage my faith as well? This is a, a mutual thing. It would be easy for an apostle to be arrogant and to think, I've only got things to share with you. But he looked forward to them serving him. I think these verses are just a wonderful example of what it looks like to be a slave of Jesus. That's what they are. What it looks like to be gripped by the gospel. And perhaps the greatest insight into Paul and how he was gripped by the gospel is down at verse 14. Because in verse 14, he gives the main reason he wants to go to Rome. Look there with me. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. The Apostle Paul felt an obligation, a debt, to tell people about Jesus. It wasn't like that it was a good thing for him. He felt, I owe everyone the right to hear the good news about Jesus. Whatever their ethnic background, whether he thought they were wise or foolish, everyone. Now, why did he feel that obligation? Well, firstly, go back to verse 1. Jesus had singled him out for the task. It was his God-given job. But there's more to it than that. I think this is the sort of obligation that a medical researcher might feel if they discover a cure for cancer. How could you keep that to yourself? That's why we find it so easy to not like the big pharmaceutical companies because they find the cure to something and then they want to sell it and they want to charge money for it rather than give it away. You have an obligation to help if you have the cure. I remember reading about some researchers in America many years ago and they were doing a trial on the effects of aspirin on heart disease uh, and it was one of those blind tests where they gave half the people uh, an aspirin tablet and they gave half the people a placebo, a, a sugar tablet and as the test went on very quickly they discovered the aspirin was having a really positive effect on the people with heart disease so they just cancelled the rest of the experiment because they wanted everyone to benefit from it rather than just keep having the placebo. They felt an obligation to the patients. I think that is the obligation Paul feels here. He has the good news of God. He has the message of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers grace and forgiveness to the world. How could he keep it to himself? I feel that obligation. I wonder, do you feel that obligation? I, 
I, as I sit in our city and as I watch people wander around, lost, like sheep without a shepherd, wandering towards a judgment day they don't even care about or acknowledge, I feel that obligation. I pray you feel it too. Of course, we're not apostles. We haven't been specifically commissioned like the Apostle Paul with this responsibility to be his ambassador, but we know the same wonderful gospel. We know the same good news. We know and believe in the same wonderful King, the same wonderful Lord. And so knowing the gospel, knowing Jesus, must create an obligation in us towards others. But of course, if you really know Jesus, it's not an obligation, is it? Notice how Paul's obligation turns to eagerness. Look at verse 15. See, if we know the wonderful message of God's forgiveness in Christ, it must be our greatest joy to see other people come to know him too. This is why we never stop praying for non-Christian friends and family. This is why we push through that awkwardness barrier to, to tell people about our Lord. This is why we're always ready to give an answer about what we believe. This is why we invite people to the life course like Lee was sharing with us before. This is why we want to be equipped to sit and read the Bible with anyone who might be interested. This is why we're so excited to send missionaries around the world and support them as they go and preach the gospel. We don't do those things because God demands it. We don't do those things to impress God. No, we do them because, like Paul before us, we know the good news about Jesus and so how could we ever keep it to ourselves? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for our term ahead in the book of Romans that as we grapple with these wonderful truths, you will remind us again and again of the wonder that it is to know Jesus, the wonder that it is to know your grace and how wonderful it is that we are saved by faith in him. But Father, we pray that like the Apostle Paul, knowing that truth might create an obligation in us, but more than an obligation, an eagerness to share that good news with all. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.